Welcome to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I speak to people who fund and support social innovation in different ways. Grant providers, impact investors of various kinds, angel investors, foundations, family offices and more. They talk frankly about how they work, how they make investment, grant and funding decisions, what they will invest in or support and what they cannot. They talk about the pros and cons of different sources of funding, share lessons and insights and provide invaluable advice for any social entrepreneur or innovator looking to build and finance a sustainable social business. This podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Echoing Green. Echoing Green drives social progress further, faster, via its Global Social Entrepreneurship Fellowship, now running for 30 years. Echoing Green's new Impact Investing Programme aims to bridge the gap between impact investors and social entrepreneurs to help build more resilient and financially stronger social impact businesses. You can find out more at echoinggreen.org. There's also on top of that a layer of market level challenges that we see. So they're operating in a very fragmented, opaque market that is not well segmented or um, doesn't have the same type of infrastructure as we see in typical capital markets. So there's kind of two layers that I see. Uh, What we've heard from um, the applicants and our fellows themselves are that um, they need a diverse type of investment rating support. So uh, everything from you know finance one on one, debt versus equity. What do these mean for your organizations? To um, you know they're ready to pitch. They want investor connections and really just need that network and the access to that network um, of finance. Um, a lot of them reported that they've heard of what impact investing is but they don't know what it specifically means for them and their business. Back in 2015, we surveyed our semi-finalists for our program. So it's over 200 uh, organizations from all over the world and asked them, you know, where else do they look for seed funding? And we got a list of, you know, almost 550 different separate uh, entities back. Most of them were in their personal networks and no one institutional funder emerged. I'm very pleased today to introduce Min Pease. Min leads the Impact Investing Program at Echoing Green, a leading global non-profit that provides seed funding and technical assistance to emerging social entrepreneurs with ideas for social change. This is an exciting new program supporting Echoing Green fellows seeking or receiving investment. In large part, this involves getting social entrepreneurs investment ready and helping them to find investors that have an aligned understanding of their mission. Min also works to engage investors in the Echoing Green community. Well, thanks so much, Min, for taking the time to speak to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. I'm I'm very much looking forward to speaking to you about Echoing Green and the work that you do on on the impact investment front. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I have had an opportunity to speak to Cheryl about Echoing Green's grant program, and I'm interested to hear about Echoing Green's impact investment work. Can you tell me about your role at Echoing Green? My role within the team is to support those fellows who are for-profit or hybrid. Um, so those are, that are running businesses that aim to create social and environmental change. And uh, they really have seen um, a huge increase um, globally of this um, population's interest in starting businesses that have uh, a for, both a for-profit and a social change mission. Um, and so uh, we then try to support them and help them fundraise, get them investment ready, 
Um, and then my role is also to help connect them with investors who understand their mission um, and their um, business model. Right, great. So that money, that the, what you call the stipend, that's um, what you call, um, I suppose, is that free money or is that money, uh, is it a loan? How is that structured? I, I know uh, Kevin Starr wrote, recently wrote an article talking about different kinds of money. There was, I think he's, one of them was free money and the other was maybe money, but um, it, <laughs> it, 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 which money, I guess, was people uh, were, were expecting that there might be a loss associated with it. Is this, uh, what, what kind of money is this? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I should note that we fund at the seed stage. So oftentimes we're the first um, external money into these um, young entrepreneurs. We generally fund from idea to about two years of operations. So um, we give nonprofits, I guess what you call free money. It's just a straight charitable grant. Um, for our for-profit organizations, back in 2011, we started giving them recoverable grants. Um, and so can go into a bit more on that, but it's, it's similar to a forgivable loan, um, and ours is structured because we believe that um, these young entrepreneurs need patient capital. They need the time to test their ideas uh, and really work out their theories of change, their business model, um, and other things, and we really prioritize social impact first. Right, right. So what was the thinking behind that, and how has it gone? <laughs> Yeah, so um, get, been getting them since 2011, and we've learned a lot. So the thinking behind them originally was, you know, how can we help our entrepreneurs learn more about what it means to um, take back or to pay back a, a, a loan? And so the stipend for the fellowship is $80,000 over two years for one fellow, $90,000 for two, uh, a partnership, and then um, just that cash stipend is what the recoverable grant is uh, covers. Um, in addition, uh, all of our contracts, as well as an FAQ, are on our website, so listeners can go check them out. Um, you can just search for recoverable grants there. Um, but essentially, if the organization that hits um, certain financial triggers within um, a certain period of time, then they pay us back, and then if they do not hit those triggers in that period of time, they don't pay us back. So intended to be really friendly to the entrepreneurs. Um, and from our end, we wanted to see how we could recycle capital back into our fellowship and fund future fellows. And so this is a way that um, our fellow community can give back and help each other grow um, and support each other. That's great, that's great. And ha ha have you had an opportunity to, to see that in action? How's it been? Yeah, so um, we're coming up on five years of data and we've, we've um, funded roughly um, 70 organizations in this way, and we're starting to see repayment. Uh, I think we'll be able to share a little bit more on the rates and, and details um, in, the, in the coming years, but um, so far having a pretty firm uh, repayment rate for the seed stage for what can be expected, um, and also our learning as we do this uh, about others who are also providing recoverable grants. So. Um, also probably important to know, a recoverable grant isn't a legally defined term. Um, and so when I say recoverable grants, um, I'm talking specifically about equity and greens terms. Um, others who provide them may have slightly different terms and rationales for offering them. Right, right. And is there much money like this around? I mean, how, how would you characterize the availability of capital for this, this seed capital for, for social entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we don't think that there is that much. Um, not other many others fund at the level that we fund at. And back in 2015, 
we surveyed our semi-finalists for our program. So it's over 200 uh, organizations from all over the world and asked them, you know, where else do they look for seed funding? And we got a list of, you know, almost 550 different separate uh, entities back. Most of them were in the personal networks. Um, no one institutional funder emerged. So others who are funding at the idea stage, uh, you know, universities, governments, um, others who offer grant funding. Um, but even though we have increased the number of fellowships that we're able to offer in the past few years, um, our acceptance rate, which I mentioned is about one to two percent, has stayed the same because the number of applications keep on growing. So we really, really see a big need for this um, at the early stage. And then I think especially um, because of the impact that these um, young entrepreneurs are seeking to make and also the markets that they're seeking to build, uh, that takes time. And so I would say not only just the shortage of seed funding generally at the idea stage, but also the type of funding that accounts for their mission. Right. Can you talk a little about the increase in the numbers of for-profit social ventures that you're seeing? And I'd, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on the growing number of hybrids too. Sure. So to start with your first question, um, we've seen a huge increase in our applicant pool. Um, and I think this is reflected in the, in the broader field as well. But uh, back in 2006, um, Harvard Business School did a study on our applicants and found that about 15% or so had aspects of for-profit or hybrid business models in their application to our program. Um, you know, fast forward a few years, this year and last year, those applications were half of all of our, our fellowship pool. So this is a striking increase and one that we think is really here to stay. These applications are cross-sector, they're cross-geography, uh, all sorts of different types of models. Uh, and, and really exciting innovation. As a seed funder, we think that we get a glimpse into the future before anyone else, given where we sit in the, uh, the funding uh, spectrum. And so uh, really see that this is a trend that's here to stay. Um, as far as hybrid business models, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of discussion about what that means and, and we've seen the whole gamut. So, um, you know, one definition of hybrid is that you have uh, a significant earned revenue source. So that could be a nonprofit, um, structured as a nonprofit, so it's a 501c3 in the US, and they have a significant earned revenue model that helps them sustain their, their activities, their charitable mission. 
uh, and we've seen this a lot. So this is in education um, and in um, all sorts of sectors that we've seen. Um, we also see a lot of organizations that may be structured um, as a for-profit in one country, um, and then also a 501c3 in the US, and this is to facilitate funding. Um, oftentimes, um, organizations who work abroad uh, may not be able to easily get you know, capital in and out of the country, or they have foreign funders. And so this is um, how they set up a structure that works in tandem uh, with, with their mission and their goals. Um, in addition, sometimes the countries don't have a nonprofit or 501c3 type of designation. And so this is where you get into really fun legal structures and questions, um, and, and they may be just formed as a for-profit because there is no alternative. So we've seen that as well. Um, generally, what I would say is that when we hear, when we see an application that's a hybrid application, so whether that's a for-profit and a nonprofit working toward the same mission, nonprofit with our revenue stream, for-profit with a nonprofit partner, um, the questions that we ask are the same. You know, it's, it's why are you doing this? Um, why, are, why do you think that a for-profit business model is the right way to achieve social and environmental change? What safeguards do you have or are you thinking about as you set up this organization and build it? Um, you know, there are tensions that um, any entrepreneur faces as they build an organization. And when you add on the layer of, you know, impact and mission, it has big implications for choosing a legal structure. Right. That's certainly an interesting development. It clearly adds complexity to the business, but at the same time gives social entrepreneurs increased flexibility in how they fund their business. Uh, I'd like to talk about business models. I know there's also been growth and innovation here in the range and types of business models that social entrepreneurs are using to fund their business. What's happening here? Yeah, so we, we see it all. And really also because, again, we're at this earliest stage, um, we get uh, a lot of great ideas. And then our job is to help them think through what that actually looks like in terms of uh, what they actually want to achieve and then also how are they going to achieve it. So I um, can share a few things. Back in 2013, we uh, launched a publication that's also on our website, echoinggreen.org, that has four profiles in it of um, different types of both our organizations and other organizations working in um, different parts of the social sector. Um, one is a nonprofit, one is a hybrid, and two are for-profits that talk about their various business models and then also how they combined both grant and investment to build those. So I encourage folks to, to kind of check that out. But um, other ones, you know, some are pretty straightforward. For example, we have a 2011 fellow, um, Joel Jackson, who runs a company called Mobius Motors, and they build uh, low-cost cars built for African roads, which aren't always, um, as you know, quite as uh, predictable as, as those in here yes. in the U.S. or other places. So that's just, you know, straight car sales, pretty simple. Um, Others, um, we have a B Corporation, so um, it is a, a for-profit business, but it's aimed at a specific mission called Black Power that's operating in New York, and they get, um, you know, their model is to get revenue from project financing. So they aggregate, you know, small businesses, nonprofits, and communities to into blocks or um, aggregate, and then through their technology platform, connect them with, um, financing that helps them get community solar and other types of renewable energy. Um, others, you know, revenues from contracts, so some do consulting, um, some have um, customer payments, pay-as-you-go models, whether that's through um, 
uh, solar lighting or education app, apps apps on um, phones, um, and some also, you know, our nonprofits work with school districts and schools, um, so access to quality education. Uh, so we are just really seeing a lot of innovation in um, where these folks are getting their revenues from, um, and usually see a few more new ideas each year. That's great. That's great. And also, um, I guess over time, the profile of the social entrepreneur and their skills is probably changing as well. Um, I mean, it wasn't long ago there wasn't a, a clear sense of what a social entrepreneur was, um, and now it's growing very fast. And certainly among the younger generation, uh, people are very keen to to you know have a social impact with with the work that they do in various different ways. Have you any uh, you know just uh, general comments about how the social entrepreneur is the kind of person who is uh, wanting to build a social business and how that's changing. Mm. Yeah, I, I can talk to this from my own experience and also, you know, note something from the organization's experience, um, given that we've been around for about 30 years now. So I think from, you know, our perspective as an organization, um, what we're really seeing is that when we first started out, um, we really didn't see the term social entrepreneur even being used. You know, it was known, but it wasn't really common. And now I think, you know, fast forward 30 or so years and you see that um, it's a term that a lot of people know. There's an ecosystem that's a bit stronger around these entrepreneurs to help them build their businesses and support them as people. Um, obviously, still a lot of work to be done around that. And then I think from my perspective, you know, it's this added layer of um, young people wanting to affect change through um, a business, so through earned revenues, through um, profits. Um, and that to me is, is really exciting. Um, some of the trends that we've seen in our applications, so I think are reflective of the broader um, kind of intersection of the social sector and the business sector. So we are closely tracking um, our data each year on do our applicants who apply as for-profits and hybrids look different than those who are nonprofits? And I think what we're starting to see is that um, those who are for-profit tend to skew white and male more than those who tend to skew nonprofit in their ideas. And so it's our role to figure out, you know, how are we missing um, or how can we better reach applicants who are close to the problems they're trying to solve and how can we better support women's entrepreneurship. Um, and I'm happy to say that this year, which is actually the first year that we've selected the majority of for-profit organizations in our portfolio, um, most of them are women entrepreneurs, and most of the women are women of color. And so really proud of that um, and hope to continue to see um, that growth in terms of what the leaders, um, where they come from, and um, what they're trying to do. Right, right. That's an interesting development. I guess Echoing Green has an excellent vantage point over 30 years to look at these kind of things. Um, I'm just wondering also about how well social entrepreneurs are doing making their case and raising money from investors. Are there a few areas perhaps where you think they could do better? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, back in 2015, we launched a report that looked at both our semi-finals applicants, as I mentioned, but also just our learnings from our fellows. So I think there's a, a few different ways to look at it in the impact investing field at the early stage. So one is obviously... Um, every entrepreneur who comes to us has individual challenges um, that they, as fundraisers, and then them, their their businesses have in terms of being able to raise the right type of money for their business. Um, there's also, on top of that, a layer of market-level challenges that we see. So they're operating in a very fragmented, opaque market. 
that is not well segmented or um, doesn't have the same type of infrastructure as we see in typical capital markets. So there's kind of two layers that I see. Uh, what we've heard from um, the applicants and our fellows themselves are that um, they need a diverse type of investment rating support. So uh, everything from you know finance one on one, debt versus equity, what do these mean for your organizations? To um, you know they're ready to pitch, they want investor connections, and really just need that network and the access to that network um, of finance. Um, a lot of them reported that they've heard of what impact investing is, but they don't know what it specifically means for them and their business. So this to us was a really interesting finding because, um, you know, how can we better help them navigate this market? How can we equip them to ask questions to get to uh, if the investors aligned on impact, financial returns, and other criteria that they have? Um, in addition, some of the challenges were um, there's diverse funding sources. Again, where do they go for that seed and early stage capital? Um, and, and the fact that they're using both grants and investments to start up um, is also an interesting piece because it's just an added complexity when you're trying to apply for grants and receiving, receiving philanthropic capital, obviously very different expectations between that capital and investors and what they want to see. That's right, right. Um, that's very interesting. Um, so what advice would you have for social uh, entrepreneurs that are looking to raise money from family offices and high net worth individuals? Sure, sure. So I think, you know, generally there's there's kind of three things that I say um, that I help our entrepreneurs think through. So one is, um, again, because with the earliest stages, first, the most important thing before they talk with any investor, any potential investor is, you know, know what they care about. So what is the impact that they actually want to create? How are they going to create it? Um, and then also how they'll be sustainable. So what that um, business model looks like. And so that's before they even think about their investors. And that's really the, the bread and butter of what we try to do in the fellowship program. Um, as far as um, working with family offices and high net worths, you know, it's, all, it's always about relationships. So always recommend that they are cultivating these relationships. It always takes longer than expected to raise funds. They should always be out there building those relationships. And whether those um, result in funding, advice, or you know, networks, um, that is something that's always key. And then once they are fundraising, once they're talking to someone, um, whether it be a family office, high net worth, or otherwise, um, encourage them to think like an investor. So consider what um, this person is, you know, what they value, what they're considering. Um, and then also, if if they need to have the business acumen to be able to talk with that person about their their financial model, because you know they're not a grant they're not a grant maker. Although they may, although through the family office they may have that on the other side of the house. Um, if it's an investment, then they need to be able to talk about their financial model and make sure that they have that that down. So that's kind of the basics, and um, can talk more from there. Great, that's great advice. So what? Um kind of in investors are you working with? I, it's, I, it's such a general term in, in many ways, impact <laughs> investors. It covers a lot of things. I guess there are people who are uh, probably doing kind of pretty traditional type investment, but are adding a layer of impact uh, on it as well in terms of the requirements that they have. And then there are others that are more uh, impact oriented and um, willing perhaps uh, or more willing to 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 uh, take a lower rate of return yeah absolutely and I think you know again because we're at the, the very early stages um, we see we work or I work more with different 
types of uh, certain types of investors, but certainly see the whole um, the whole spectrum. And I think that's partially to do with some of the market challenges that I, I mentioned earlier. Um, but at the earliest stage, you know, very typically, um, like a typical startup founder, um, friends and family is the first network that they that they tap. Um, and so we see a lot of them being funded by angels, friends and family, et cetera. Um, family offices and high net worths are also um, very involved in the early stage. So those who, um, especially were entrepreneurs themselves, um, are interested in our fellows. That makes a lot of sense. They like to offer both their time um, and their treasure, as, as some call it. Uh, however, we also see as our fellows mature um, and um, as their business models begin to scale, some of them now are Series B or so, uh, they are obviously now working with a very different population of investors. They're starting to get into um, impact investment funds, uh, typical you know, venture capitalists, um, and then also, interestingly, some are working with um, venture capitalists but from their grant-making side. So the whole spectrum is there. I think that um, prob probably um, as we begin to look at our data more this fall and next year, and through, through a project that we're doing, um, we'll have a bit more insight on who they've actually talked to versus gotten funding from um, as, our, as our portfolio as a whole. Right, right. And so do, uh, do family offices, are they looking to make investments where they're expecting to make a, a financial return? Yeah, it's still the whole spectrum, I would say. And, and that's partially reflective, too, of our portfolio. So um, I should note that Equine Green funds across sectors, across geographies, and really look for both the individual's long-term potential as a leader in the social sector and also their business model idea. So um, definitely unlike some accelerators or others do not choose for the potential for them to make you know, a 10X financial return or more, um, but really look for the right combination of the person and the idea. So because of that diversity, um, I would say that you know some investors who I talk to um, definitely are very market focused and that's great. Um, that helps me better understand what, how I can help them um, connect with our community in a way that's meaningful to them. Um, and others are very much more aligned with us where maybe they are offering recoverable grants or charitable grants um, and that can help unlock capital down the line that is potentially more market focused for entrepreneurs. But I would say of the business models that we see, um, some will be regular, you know, just straight um, more market rate return off they they will be better off you'll be better able to offer market rate returns um, in the long run and some will always be able to offer a steady return but it might not ever be um, you know quote unquote whatever market rate means um, and some um, projects may just always have some sort of philanthropic capital involved yes yes I, it's such a broad range, really, isn't it? Can you talk a little bit about business angels and what they look for? I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, as you say, it's very fragmented and I guess very idiosyncratic, different, uh, different projects, different uh, angels. Um, anything you can say at all about the kinds of returns they're looking for and, and how you talk to uh, social uh, entrepreneurs about that or how they should think about the kinds of returns that they, they would hope to make or should be thinking about making if they're looking to talk to business angels? Sure. So, um, again, across the spectrum, but um, very generally, the advice that we offer our fellows um, is very much, you know, do as much due diligence on any investor as you would, as they are going to do on you. So obviously, at, as angels, there is less due diligence oftentimes than 
um, they would be working with a fund or a foundation, as you as you'd expect. Um, so oftentimes, with the angel investor, this is someone who can cut a check for fifty thousand, you know, however much money um, at the time of meeting them, um, and it's really a connection between the investor and the entrepreneur as people. That you know, something just clicks, and they like the story. Um, maybe they have some sort of personal connection to it, um, and so that's you know that's kind of the transaction that that we see anyway. Um, as far as financial returns, um, again, all across the spectrum really depends on the business model. Um, when you have all these, this kind of spectrum of different types of earned revenue uh, models, like I mentioned earlier, um, really depends on the business itself. Right, right. Any figures at all you can give us? Um, no. So the so. Our, our fellows, um, because they're with us for two years, um, and then because when they turn become alumni, um, and that's oftentimes when they're you know raising larger sums of money, um, they they stop reporting to us at that point. So we have um, information from them for their two years, and then beyond, it's it's a bit bigger. Um, however, this fall actually we're starting a project in a collaboration with um, a partner to survey all of our our fellows. We have about nearly 100 now who are for-profit or hybrid, um, to get a better sense of you know, their, their growth. So where did they get funding from, who did they get it from, and a bit more about um, how they've grown and what kind of returns that they're getting. So hope to be able to share that um, out quite a bit later, but um, for now can't really comment on, on their individual returns. No, it's a, it's, it's, it's a work in progress really, isn't it? It's, it's such an early... Uh, developing market and I guess so much depends on the the particular cases and the particular investors and so forth. Are you connected with a group of investors and can you talk a little bit about how you see that evolving at Echoing Green? Sure, so um, one example of a partner that we have is called Tonic, so this is an impact investing angel network. Um, they don't charge entrepreneurs to apply um, to their um, their community and so we have a partnership with them that uh, notes that if uh, our fellows meet their basic criteria then we can refer them um, to the, the tonic network and then get them get our fellows up on their platform and more visible in their community um, so that is that's a great opportunity for our fellows to utilize if and when they feel like that's appropriate um, and I what I, I what I really like about tonic um, is that they don't charge entrepreneurs to apply and so other angel networks may do that um, likely targeting later stage entrepreneurs that ours are again because we're the earliest stages um, it would be financially burdensome for our entrepreneurs to pay for that opportunity at this point um, whereas if they're alums they can pay a bit more okay so to what degree uh, do you provide uh, more generic support uh, when it comes to uh, raising uh, impact investment, or to what degree is it bespoke to the uh, each uh, social innovator or entrepreneur situation? So we try to find a happy medium. Uh, we released a report earlier this year that kind of talked about our approach to supporting fellows, also on our website. Um, but this is it's, we really find that it's a little bit in between. So uh, there's a few reasons for this. So first is the literature. Um, and the assessment that's been done so far of accelerator programs um, found that customized, fully customized support is really best for the entrepreneurs, um, gets the highest, um, gets the best results, and then also uh, is, however, the most expensive and the trickiest business model. So it's high quality but also high cost. 
Um, whereas full standardization, uh, say you have a curriculum um, and everyone gets the same set of tools, um, that doesn't make sense for our portfolio because again, global across sectors um, makes less sense for them. So our approach is really to be configurable. How can we provide our community with a configurable venue of support? So that means um, what resources exist, what tools exist, and then what gaps are there that we need to help fill in and create for them um, to support them um, so that when they decide that they need this type of support, we can better offer it to them and they can have a better understanding of what's available. Uh, and so this year we're piloting a set of tools specifically focused on fundraising that help us as a team better diagnose where fellows are um, in their investment readiness process. And so by doing this and by asking them questions along different areas that they'll need to develop and think about before they go and fundraise, um, everything from, you know, what is your uh, theory of change to do you have a lawyer, kind of the whole spectrum. Um, where Depending on where those fall then, we can then identify more, more closely where their needs are and then be able to offer them, uh, you know, access to our network of advisors, um, access to tools and resources that exist um, and help them uh, navigate the, the process a bit better. Right, right. And, and, and remind me, um, is it open to all of your fellows or just fellows at a particular stage in the development? How, how does that work? Yeah, it's open to all. So um, once they come onto the fellowship, they all self-assess where they're at in terms of their skills and their competence around um, these different fundraising areas. And then um, they decide if, if they're ready to think about fundraising, again, because some are just at the idea stage and may need to need or want to focus on different areas of their work. Um, if they're ready to think about fundraising, though, then we definitely have that conversation early on and can help them identify, um, again, everything from tools to templates to um, advisors who can help them think through that area. Great, great. Now, can you tell me a little bit about CEDIT, if I pronounced that correctly? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, the CEDIT is a seed impact investment template note that we created earlier this year. Um, and I'll, I'll just start off so our lawyers are happy that this is not legal advice. So just go check it out with your own lawyer before you get too excited. Um, but this is free on our website. And this is part of our work that we do because um, we can only select the top one to two percent of applicants every year. And so um, part of our other role is to raise our entrepreneurs' voices more broadly for the field and incorporate their voice into uh, what's happening in the market and all of the innovation and excitement around investment. Um, and so this project was started because uh, we were working with a group of for-profit and hybrid alumni for a few years and had heard with them that um, they weren't seeing terms from um, their early stage investors that they thought aligned with their mission. So again, speaking to a few other challenges that I mentioned around um, the time it takes to build markets, um, the patient capital that they need to test their ideas at the early stage um, really led to this conversation. And so how could they, um, as entrepreneurs, contribute back to the field and um, for kind of um, helping future entrepreneurs navigate this process as well. So we engaged a law firm in New York, Sullivan & Cromwell, which is an um, international firm, has worked with a variety and all of the large financial institutions, um, and with their input and legal expertise, created this template. Um, so it's a design for debt investment into an early stage social enterprise. Um, investors should be primarily concerned with advancing the mission 
of the company not with earning a large financial return. Um, all of the details are online, but the kind of takeaway is, you know, A, how do we do a better job at incorporating, uh, incorporating entrepreneur voices into the investment process? And also, how do they access quality legal services to be with them there at the early stages um, so that they don't agree to unfavorable terms to, to early financing? Um, and so this was really the result of this group of entrepreneurs. Um, we may or may not do um, other sorts of projects in the future, but have so far received really good feedback on it from both investors and entrepreneurs alike. It's always very useful to have a, a, a generic document like that, but as you say, I, um, people need to make sure it works for them and, and uh, their, their own responsibility legally and so forth. I'm just wondering, any other uh, developments that you think are exciting in the world of funding for social innovation? Yeah, so again, putting my early stage cap on, I think they're, the most excitement lately has been around um, mainstreaming the market. Uh, and so certainly lots of money is moving here from mainstream investors, banks, pensions, um, and that's really exciting. Um, I would say that the other end of the spectrum of where we said at the earliest stages, um, there are a few exciting developments, but there's still a lot of challenges. Uh, but to speak to some of the exciting developments that we're seeing, um, you know, I've been hearing about a lot of new technology platforms that have been created to facilitate this finding and matching of entrepreneurs and investors. Um, I think there's going to be some flourishing of innovation there, and then we'll see um, which ones, you know, kind of get the, the, the scale that they need to succeed. Um, there's obviously, uh, excitingly, more understanding around impact terms. So an impact term sheet project um, came out earlier this year. Um, and certainly my work with the legal community in creating the CEDIT um, is exciting because they're the third people at the table, right, when you're negotiating a deal. Um, and so they're beginning to coalesce and start to create a very kind of emerging community around identifying social entrepreneur needs, uh, figuring out what these hybrid models mean, et cetera. And so that's also um, exciting from my perspective. Uh, and then finally, there's a lot of things that are that are a little bit TBD for me, so developments that... I think could go a little bit either way, and we'll see how they play out. But uh, one is obviously crowdfunding. So here in the United States, um, some changes in how you can raise funding, um, uh, investment funding through crowdfunding. We'll kind of see how that plays out. Um, I think in our community, just a few are starting to think about that. Um, and then the other exciting development is millennials. So I think this is also a little bit of a wait and see, but there's you know interest in this group for participating. Um, they've indicated through various surveys and other things um, that they want to align their values with their money. And so I think this is just really, um, as this generation um, gets the you know massive amounts of wealth transferred to them, what will they do with that? And what would that mean for um, their excitement around aligning their, their purpose and their money? Um, and so this will, I think that'll be something that plays out, but is exciting at its, at its genesis right now. That's great. That's great. Thank, thank you for that, Min. And um, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share um, the work that you're doing and, and, and what you've learned and the trends that you see. Looking forward um, uh, over the next few years, what is the, the, the vision for the, uh, this part of uh, Echo and Green, helping the investors, uh, helping entrepreneurs raise impact investment? And, and uh, any, anything you can say about the next few years there? Yes, yeah, so next year is our 30 year anniversary and so we're incredibly excited and you know definitely keep an eye on 
and what we're up to. Um, I think that a big piece of that will be, um, for me anyway, is is figuring out how to get, you know, part of what we do now is getting entrepreneurs ready for investment ready, um, but how do we get investors ready for entrepreneurs? So continuing to elevate our entrepreneur voices in this conversation um, as this market is being created um, will continue to be a priority. Um, and then I think for Eckling Green ourselves, it's um, building out our investor community uh, and trying to focus on getting all of our entrepreneurs funded. That's a great vision, Min. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to financing social entrepreneurs today. I wish you the very best of success with the great work that you and Echoing Green are doing. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. I hope you found this interview valuable. Please make sure to visit financingsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.